it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, December 16th, 2022. Happy Friday. Merry Christmas. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Glad to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And around the clock for free on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com for that. And all the ways to listen live, and there are many, including through our friends at Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. If you can't listen live, as I mentioned, there's that podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. Always available, some bonus content there as well. We'll get to our first guest here in studio in just a moment. Here's the rest of the lineup on this Friday. Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal kicking off our next hour. Always enjoy chatting with Kim. And then Janice Dean. Maybe we'll talk about the weather with her, maybe not. You never know with Janice. It should be fun. That's our happy hour coming up roughly two hours from now. But I'm very pleased to welcome here in the studio... Congressman Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House of Representatives, who is the likeliest man to become Speaker of the House in just a few weeks. And it is great to see you. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for coming in. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for having me. This is a great studio. All right. So let's talk about this date that I would imagine you have circled on your calendar. (laughs) Not Christmas, not Christmas Eve, January 3rd. It's going to be the Speaker vote. You have the overwhelming support of Republicans in the House to become the next Speaker. Republicans have somewhat narrowly won back the House of Representatives in the new Congress. But, as has been discussed endlessly in the media, there's this group of holdouts, sort of hardcore holdouts on sort of the right flank of the party, and they're saying, never Kevin, we're not going to vote for him, period. And because of how close the margin is, I mean, they matter, right? So what's happening here? What's the end game for them, do you think? Well, hopefully the end game is everybody finds a way to get together. It's it's not just going to be speaker votes. It's how you're going to be governed for the next two years because any five members can stop anything. It doesn't matter where you fill out on the philosophical um, place out there. Um, Look, in the last two cycles, I've been leader for four years. The Senate lost seats. The governors have lost seats, Republican. The president lost. We have won both cycles. We won 13 seats last time, over nine this time. Our goal was to win the majority, stop the Biden agenda, and fire Nancy Pelosi. We achieved all three. Um, We're going to have to find a way that we all work together. It's probably a new train of thought for us. And, you know, they don't they don't they don't hand gavels out by size. You, you don't get a small, medium and large based upon the size of your majority. You get the exact same gavel. We'll have the exact same majority that the Democrats have today. Right. So we are the only ones standing in the way of more socialism. But it's not just us able to stand in the way we can govern. Now, a lot of things can happen on that very first day. We can get this. You can't do anything in, until you get the speaker vote. So you want to get the speaker votes, you've got to put the rules package in, but then you start setting up the committees. And there's a lot of things, if you want to secure the border, you want to become energy independent, you want a parent's bill of rights, you want accountability. You can't put any subpoenas out. You can't uh, 
go to try to change a course of history when it comes to the border and others. And well, the whole roadmap that you guys put out, you can't start to, down the road unless there's a Speaker of the House. You can't even swear in the members until the Speaker of the House decision is made. Which brings me back to the question, though. If you have these guys and they seem recalcitrant, they're dug in, they're saying they're not going to vote for you. It's like, okay, well, then what, right? Because you're not going to have a Democratic speaker in a well, Republican House. You know, that was kind of already decided, though. This is, this is the challenge. After the election, we come together as, in a conference and people run for who wants to be the speaker nominee. Okay? You're in the majority. Dan uh, Crenshaw yesterday on the show said it's like the primary within the, primary. the caucus. It's the primary within the caucus. I want 85% of the vote. Seems so, decisive. Yeah, so you seem like that would be over. Um, and what could happen here, though, too, if you haven't, we haven't witnessed this in quite some time, but in the past, every speaker's had some challenge, right? Inside that primary, I think, did Paul have 37 people vote against him? Pelosi had 40-some. And the, the last couple of times, speaker races have been close, um, but never to the point that you didn't get it on the first round. Um, if that's not the case, nothing happens. Staff doesn't get hired. Committees don't start. You just go around this place. But I think really to the American public, it's going to weaken the Republicans. Sure. Right? Are we prepared to start at the first day? Do we look like we're beginning? Next year is a presidential year. We only have so much window to govern, to really lay out our agenda, to really change what the American people has asked us to. And if we spend more time on this, it's only going to bog us down. Are these guys asking you because i know you're having all these meetings constantly in your office you're just like you know cajoling and trying it's like let's come together let's be a happy family they're like well we'll meet with you but we're not that happy are they asking you for concessions can you give them certain things yeah, there's, there's a number of things Pe- people want to see a different structure i'm all for that and in, in a world where you only have a five seat majority everybody's got power mm-hmm. so it's not like take for instance okay say five or six of them say they don't want to vote for me well, they don't get to det- they can determine something doesn't happen, but they don't determine something does happen. Those five, six don't get to pick the speaker. I got 200 are sitting with me. So who are they going to pick? Right. So we can sit there for a long period till everybody sees it. But do you want to air that out in the public? So really what people are talking about, how can we change the structure? We changed a lot of the rules and. I can't just determine what happens. The conference as a whole votes on these items. Uh, What I'm able to do is open the conference up so there's more debate, open the floor up so there's more opportunity, more amendments, more more, um, ability. And the one thing people had concerns in the past was everybody able to get on different committees. Well, I've proven that. And it, it can't be a philosophical basis if you look from where I come from. But if it's a concern that people think are conservative, well, Jim Jordan supports me. Marjorie Green supports me. Donald Trump supports me. Um, so I don't know where this quite basis comes from. As people have offered different ideas, I've opened up the conference, and they, I think even people who have disagreements will say they've never had this type of debate before. They've never had this openness before. And it's really something we're all going to have to learn how to do. It's not how a committee is going to craft a bill and then how do we get the bill um, to pass. It's everybody's got to be engaged in the bill from the very beginning. And we all got to have to support. We've got a big challenge with what Biden and the Democrats still control the Senate. Right. If we're divided, we're not going to hold it. We're either going to unite together or we're going to lose individually. And the Democrats were pretty good at uniting and unfortunately passing their stuff. Pelosi was as good at getting her people in line and whipping Very the good. votes and all of it. But already I'm starting to sort of think about this. And I'm not trying to be difficult, but it's like if the very first vote on the very first day 
is Speaker of the House, Mm -hmm. and the Republicans can't get on the same page, and it's a big, drawn-out, messy thing, a lot of voters, Republican, Independents, Democrats, will say, how on earth are these guys going to pass anything if you've got a group of five right-wingers in this case or five moderates in that case, and everyone's off, you know, you're trying to herd cats, and they don't want to really be governed within the conference. How do the Republicans govern in the real sense? That's why I think at the end of the day— I hope all the members put people before politics, that they understand the voters have just entrusted us with some power. And why did they do that? They didn't like what was happening. They wanted to check and balance. But if they look at the very first day, we've had our primary. We've had our debate inside. People had an opportunity to run. It wasn't a close race. It was 85%. I received higher than in past races, even inside the Freedom Caucus. They have a rule that if 80 percent agree on some 100 percent have to vote that way. So we've passed every threshold possible. Um, there's nothing that I'm not saying. Somebody has an idea in a minute. Bring it forward. The conference as a whole gets to decide which direction we go. There's one part that they want to they want to bring back something that is called a motion to vacate where any one person can say, I want to throw the speaker out today. I've been very clear that Shift and Swalwell are not going to be on Intel. If you ever got the FBI briefing I did on Swalwell, you wouldn't let him on any committees. But why wouldn't he raise it every day and bog down our agenda? Mm. We have to be smart about this. Let's not turn the floor over to the Democrats. Let's govern the way we said we would govern. And yeah, One of the advantages of being the majority in the House is you really can control things unless you start making mistakes, allowing the other side to come in. And you guys wreaked a little havoc on the Democrats with re- motions to recommit until Pelosi just lowered the boom them. on that. Yeah. yeah, and we were good at it. But we're watching Title 42 get lifted. 14,000 people a day come across, and we're going to sit and bicker over something we've already had a vote on instead of deciding the American public is more important. Especially as the very first thing. It's like a first impression. Yeah. The new Congress, people are watching. I do want to ask you, as you yes. said you've got, you know, now some power is back in the Republicans' hands. You're going to have probably this this gavel at some point. You guys were expecting a lot more seats, and I know over on the Senate side they were hoping to have a majority. didn't happen. Why do you think, given all the circumstances in the country, which were so favorable, and you guys were ahead on the biggest issues, economy, crime, all of that, why wasn't, a bigger, why wasn't it a bigger night? Well, there's a number of things. I mean, and the one thing I will say, uh, in the last two cycles, they haven't been big for Republicans. Republicans have lost the last two cycles, but there's been one, one shining star through all that, the House. We were supposed to lose 15 seats the last time, but we beat 15 Democrats. And it was the first time since 94, not one incumbent lost. So and you it, swept all the toss-ups yeah. in 20. So I've only been leader four years, and I've, we've only won seats during the time of I've been a leader. I don't know historically when that's ever happened back-to-back, but someone should look that up. But last cycle— we hope to win more. But if you look at the end of the day, it was a redistricting year. And there's a numerous things that have caused this. Um, if you look at the percentage of the overall vote, Republican, Democrat, we overwhelmingly won. But the margins narrow. So what that tells you for the next 10 years, you're not going to have big majorities. You're not going to have a 240-seat majority. It's going to be disproportionate. And if it becomes where it's even with the number of Republican, Democrat, Republicans are going to be in the minority. So that's going to be different. We won in seats that people didn't think. We've won the last two cycles in California both times. We won in Oregon, which we haven't done in a long time. We won on the border, 
which we haven't done in a long time. We won in New York. We beat the DCCC chair. It hasn't happened in 42 years. We've won five seats that, that Biden won by more than 10 points. Mm-hmm. Three of those are in California. And think about what we were able to achieve there. So we've won in these really tough, tough seats. But in these closer ones, what really happened is there was an undecided block that normally you would assume if they were undecided right before the election day, they'd break our way. Mm -hmm. They didn't. They broke even. So I think the Supreme Court case, Dobbs, had something to do with that. If you looked at the Democrats, they did drive their turnout bigger than I thought they would. They had the youth vote even higher. Um, There's also a problem when you look at certain states that we won on and certain states we lost. In Pennsylvania, we didn't do well, even though we have a number of seats we came really close. We came close in Rhode Island and Connecticut and these others. Top of the ticket mattered. New Hampshire, you had a great governor. The Senate candidate didn't do well. In Pennsylvania, we had a governor candidate that never was on TV. So our candidates overperformed the top of the ticket, but they'd overperform the top of the ticket maybe eight points, but they needed to be 10 points. So that hurt. In Michigan... Well, in Michigan, John James did great. We picked up a seat, but we were hoping to pick up two. But the governor candidate there didn't perform as well, right? In Iowa, for the first time, I think, since 1954, we have all four seats. We picked up the other seat. So if you look in the last two cycles, we've won three seats in Iowa out of the four. Um, so there are really good places that we did well. Yeah, no, you zoom in on certain states, like New York is incredible. Yeah. And in other places where it didn't work out so well, and I know it's being dissected by all the pundits. Th- a couple things we did. We, we drove the campaigns everywhere. So we extended the race beyond that the Democrats can control. Um, that was providing resources. Our recruiting was excellent. When you look at when Myra Flores won in the special, Monica De La Cruz, Juan Siscomani in Tucson. Do you know Juan? Not personally. You, you should have Juan on here. You know, Juan immigrates from Mexico at age 11. His father, I believe, still drives a city bus in Tucson, Arizona. His wife is first generation, went to Stanford on academic. She actually grew up in my district, an ma- amazing woman as well. They have six kids. Juan is an economic advisor, but it's right there on the border. And when Juan won the primary, he calls me. You know, I call him congratulations. He calls me the next day. He goes, he's almost in tears. He goes, Kevin, you don't understand. The victory party was like one mile from the doctor's house. I used to go at age 14 with my father and mow the lawn and wash his car for extra money. And this country just gave me an opportunity. Mm. I mean, it gives you goosebumps. Um, if you look at, uh, in Oregon, um, Chavez de Reamer, Lori, amazing. We always talk about winning in Oregon. She just won in Oregon. Um, she's an amazing candidate. You, you look at Mike, no, you've got some you very compelling Lawrence. people coming through. You, you look at John James. Here's John James, Wesley Hunt in Texas. You know what those both have in common? They both went to West Point and both were helicopter pilots. They also both happen to be African-American. Um, we have elected more black Republicans since since um, since back in the 1870s, we have elected the most Hispanic Republicans this cycle. Um, when, when I first came in as leader, um, we had almost some of the smallest numbers of women Republicans. In. We, we, we've been able to expand. So th- there are certain really parts that have been done really well for us. But we haven't got all the way. Yeah. No, so there's, the look, party there's, itself. Has there's to some get wins. Back. We're almost up on a break, so I just okay. have to jump in. But some of the personalities coming in are very impressive. Obviously, my biggest thing is no matter what the margin is, you've got to win the House because you've got to put an end to this Biden agenda. Just, you know, nonstop Democrat steamrolling. That will be over. 
thank God, next year. The question is, how much can House Republicans govern? Step one is selecting a speaker. And are you confident very quickly, 10 seconds, that you will be the next speaker of the House? Yes. I have a, look, I've been leader for four years. All we've done was win. Um, and, you won, and you won 85 percent of the caucus. Like, I mean, that and, should be a, and to we, me. We recruited the best candidates. The party is more expanded in places we've never been before. We've won in places we haven't won in years. The resources. Also, you've got to raise the money. Half a billion dollars. No one's ever. And what's helped it to expand. If that's not good enough to be able to have the opportunity to be speaker, then what is? If hard work no longer matters, what will? January 3rd is the big day. We'll see what happens. Kevin McCarthy, the current House Republican leader, and very well could become the Speaker of the House, in a matter of weeks. It's great to see you face-to-face. Thanks for coming, and Merry Christmas, and we'll catch up after early January. How about that? Thank you. Merry Christmas to all, and uh, Happy Hanukkah. We'll be right back after this. It's The Guy Benson Show, just getting started on this Friday. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So this is real. This is a screenshot It's on CNN earlier today. They've got this graphic, full screen, smiling photo of Joe Biden. Biden's end-of-year accomplishments. And they have some of them listed out. These are the things that our president has accomplished per CNN. One of them is he's averted the rail strike. See, I seem to recall that he couldn't do that and said he had to punt that to Congress, and then Congress did that on a bipartisan basis because he couldn't. Get the parties to agree. But I guess he signed the bill. So that's an accomplishment that Joe Biden was able to pull off. My favorite one on this list by far. I had to make sure this was real. Nuclear fusion breakthrough. This is like in the headlines earlier in the week. Or I guess scientists have been working on this stuff for decades. Using lasers. I don't understand it. This is not my wheelhouse at all. But they had some breakthrough on nuclear fusion. And they're at CNN. They're calling that a Biden accomplishment. Amazing. Got me thinking, you know, maybe that's why the White House calls these early lids so often. It's not because Joe is sneaking off to Delaware to the beach. No, he's going down to the bunker to do some science. Rolling up his sleeves. Joe Biden personally achieving A nuclear fusion breakthrough. Now, that really would be an achievement. What a graphic at CNN. Are they really changing it all? Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. 
GuyBensonShow.com is our website, the podcast, free of charge every day. All right, so some people have been asking me about this. The uh, Secretary Pete situation. Couple, I would say mini controversies swirling around Pete. These are not bombshells. These are not political cardinal sins. But there's a few interesting choices, maybe some weird to bad looks for Mayor Pete, now Secretary Pete, who is, of course, the Secretary of Transportation under the Biden administration. Not exactly sure what qualified him for that post, but I don't know what qualifies a lot of folks for posts that they get. So Buttigieg, we mentioned this, what was it, a couple days ago, a watchdog group found out that he has been flying private jets a fair amount. The number I saw, I think, was 18 private jet flights as secretary. And I was sent back in time, in my memory, and reminded of Tom Price, who was HHS secretary under President Trump, who had taken, I think, two dozen, something like that, private jet trips funded by taxpayers, similar type of deal, when he was health secretary at the start of the Trump administration. It became like this big drumbeat scandal, and people were asking all these questions, and the White House was getting quizzed about it every day, and eventually he was sort of hounded out of office and he resigned. Now, there might be some differences in the specifics. I've seen that the defense from uh, the Transportation Department of Pete in this case is, oh, well, uh, this was more efficient in some of the cases. It was cheaper in other cases. I like to know the situation where it was cheaper to fly private than commercial. I fly commercial a lot. I've occasionally looked at flying private just to see, like, what would it cost, and it's, like, absolutely prohibitive. Like, no way. I don't make anywhere close to that amount of money. Of course, I don't have taxpayers paying for stuff. It have to be my own cash. That's their claim. In some cases, it was cheaper. In other cases, in other cases rather, it was more efficient. I would also add that he is the transportation secretary, right? We had a summer, a nightmarish summer in terms of cancellation and delays when it comes to flights and trains for that matter. Trying to get up and down the eastern seaboard. The trains were delayed constantly. Flights were worse. I had multiple flights this summer where not only was my flight canceled, there was a cascade of cancellations where I never even got to my final destination. Like entire trips just went away, including a pretty important business trip. There was just no way to get there. And I wasn't just unlucky. This is what was happening. And there were a lot of reasons behind that. I'm not blaming Pete Buttigieg for all these reasons. But when average American travelers are having all these problems, and of course, people who just drive, they had record high gas prices. Like, or at least, you know, it's been the highest numbers in many years. Some astoundingly high numbers across the country. It just wasn't really a very fun year for American travelers using all sorts of forms of transportation. Transportation being in the name of the department that Buttigieg leads. Be it planes, trains, or automobiles, it wasn't fun. And the transportation secretary, it seems to me, should be taking modes of transportation that the American people are taking. And not getting flown privately from place to place, especially, I mean, setting aside all of the climate stuff. Right? I mean, private jet usage 
from a climate perspective is almost uniquely wasteful, which is why John Kerry, the climate czar, has come under fire for this sort of thing. So I kind of want to know why was Tom Price, aside from the fact that he was a conservative and a Republican working for Trump, (laughs) the obvious answer, but on substance, I'm open to this, did he do something much more scandalous or unethical than what Buttigieg has been doing? Because there's been almost no attention paid to Pete in the private jets. And he's, you know, almost at the same number that Price was at. Similar ballpark. Now there's this story from the Washington Free Beacon that I'll just read from and just quote a little bit. Headline, Buttigieg vacationed in Europe as rail unions were on verge of strike. As rail contract negotiations entered a period of crisis in September... Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg phoned in from over 3,500 miles away during a vacation in Porto, Portugal, a posh tourist destination best known for its wine production, the Washington Free Beacon has learned. Buttigieg quietly jetted off to Portugal on August 29th, a week before Amtrak began canceling all long-distance trips in preparation of a potentially catastrophic rail strike. The Labor Day weekend... Travel was, quote, a long-planned personal trip, according to a spokesperson at the Department of uh, Transportation. And Buttigieg, quote, remained available and engaged from Europe. And there was, I guess, some Zoom call where he put on a suit and his little secretary pin and showed up on the Zoom as if he were somewhere in the U.S., just like, you know, engaged. Here I am. Hi, everyone. I'm working. And then it was back to this vacation. And I've seen people criticizing Pete over this as well. Again, you know, I'm not like all worked up and furious about it, but I think there are some odd choices involved here. Like think back to what was it? Earlier last year where there were all the huge production problems all across the country, the distribution problems, the supply chain disruptions, you had ships just languishing off the coast of California, waiting to finally get into port and offload their stuff. And there were some very serious problems on the transportation front. There really have been more so than usual over these last two years. And again, I'm not pointing the finger saying it's all because of Pete. There were things happening beyond his or any one person's control. Doesn't change the fact that those things were happening and that those things were happening within his portfolio as the Secretary of Transportation. Maybe he thought like, hey, here's a cabinet post. He's been climbing the political ladder and sort of calculating his career since the womb. The goal of becoming president one day, obviously. And he's sort of checked all these boxes. You can sort of see in his the wheels turning in his brain. I'll go to this, then I'll do that, then I'll try that. And that's the type of political animal, career politician, generally, that he's been. I mean... You know, if more power to him, that's what he wants to do. If he, he thinks that's what's going to bring him fulfillment and he feels like that's the best way to attain power, like, you know, his life, his choices, whatever. Now, famously, he and his husband have two children now. They're twins. And Buttigieg, it turned out, was on paternity leave, parental leave, paid leave for, I've read, different accounts between one and two months. And it wasn't really publicly known 
This was during a lot of the stuff that was happening in the transportation sphere, uh, sphere, and he was not on the job. Now, the counterpoint here is apparently there was at least one complication with one of the pregnancies, and there was a baby in NICU, and I think one of the children was on was on a ventilator. I mean, this is scary stuff for anyone who uh, is a parent or might be a parent. You're just imagining that. You can empathize. I don't think anyone would begrudge a parent taking some time off when they're a new parent, especially if a kid is struggling in the early days. Right? That's that's scary. I think we can all sympathize with that. I also think being gone from any major cabinet position for a month or two months is questionable. Like if Pete wanted to just live the life that he wanted to live and go to Portugal on vacation, and again, if you want to go on vacation, great. Everyone needs vacation. Everyone needs time to recharge the batteries. I think some of the dumber controversies is when people say, oh, look, a president went golfing or whatever. I think sometimes you have to think about optics. You have to think about context. There is sometimes room for real criticism. But overall, let our leaders, like everyone else, take some time away to rest, recover, rest their brain just a little bit. That's necessary. Now, is it necessary for the United States Secretary of Transportation to, over the course of his time in that position, go overseas on vacation? You might say, you know, while you're U.S. Secretary of Transportation, maybe you should transport yourself using normal methods, trains, planes, publicly available automobiles, that sort of thing, to places inside the United States. Like, maybe that's the smarter political move to make. But if you want to go with your husband to Portugal, I mean, it sounds great. I want to go to Portugal. It's not something that I've done yet. It's on my list. In fact, I might tentatively be going there uh, later next year. We'll see. But I'm also a private citizen. I'm not someone who signed up for public service in this particular realm. Like when you agree to serve in a presidential administration at a very high level and you have an important portfolio and there are crises happening within that realm, within that portfolio, crises that are imminent or crises that are underway, when you're gone for a month or two, even if the reason is completely legitimate, it's going to raise some eyebrows. And when there's a potentially crippling national rail strike coming with the clock ticking down and Amtrak getting close to canceling a bunch of trains. People worry that it could cost, if this goes into effect, the U.S. economy billions of dollars every day. It's a choice to get on a plane and fly abroad for a fancy vacation overseas. Rather than being somewhere in the United States while you're in the administration. And because you have this potential big threat that deals directly with an area that you are presiding over as a cabinet secretary looming. Going on that vacation is a choice. Again, as I just said, no one should attack a public figure for going on vacation sometimes. It was the end of August. It's a normal time that people do it. But also, it wasn't a normal circumstance in the U.S. transportation system with this strike that had been sort of punted once already. Off, not on the distant horizon, but some very important things forthcoming imminently at that point.
like if Pete wanted to just have uh, a normal, quiet life where he could not have any of these things scrutinized and no one would ask questions, no one would think twice about him going off to Portugal or wherever he wants to go. He could have just you know, gone back to McKinsey or Deloitte or wherever it was and made some good money and made these choices as a private citizen no one would care. But, like, I do get it. Flying the private jets when it was a problem for a previous cabinet secretary in the previous administration, especially as the transportation secretary, then choosing an overseas destination for a fancy vacation while this problem is brewing and starting to boil over in your area of government and taking the amount of time he took off parental leave right in the thick of a lot of these problems on supply chains and other transportation issues, when you just add them up, it's not a big scandal. It's not, you know, Pete Buttigieg disqualifying himself from public office or anything like that. It just doesn't necessarily paint a portrait of someone who is terribly interested in making a ton of big sacrifices to do a job that is so piously described as public service. Right? Sometimes big sacrifices are made when, like, if you want the power, which obviously he does, sometimes there's upsides to having the power, and sometimes there are downsides to having the power. And I understand the human impulse to try to minimize the downsides, and you can in a vacuum, justify any of these things that I've just listed off. But when you put them all together and sort of zoom out just a tiny bit, it kind of seems like this is someone who wants to have a nice, pleasant, not terribly challenging time as a cabinet secretary to boost a resume as he's maybe getting some much-needed rest and relaxation ahead of his next run for president which I think he is desperate to engage in as soon as humanly possible. I'd be willing to bet that he is very, very hopeful that his boss doesn't run for re-election because he wants to be right back in there in the thick of it. And even if he doesn't win the nomination for his party this time, maybe he'll raise his profile and the next gig will be the next step, next stepping stone in this map that he's created for himself toward power right he's already abandoned his home state of indiana he figured out it's too red i'm not going to win there statewide that's sort of a dead end so they've now become michigan residents and when that became official i joked if you're a michigan democrat statewide office you might want to start looking over your shoulder because secretary pete might decide he wants to be governor pete or senator pete and he might start spending a lot new time in his brand new state which is a lot bluer than his actual home state. I'm just saying. Not super worked up about it, not pounding the table, look at Pete, what he's doing, it's awful. It's just, he's making some choices. He's making some choices, and I think hoping that some folks might not notice some of those choices or criticize him that much. And maybe his bet is that ultimately he won't really get called out too much on it certainly by the media, and maybe that's a good bet on his part. For example, they did the Respect for Marriage Act signing at the White House. Don Lemon from CNN was 
on site doing a bunch of interviews. He was there with Buttigieg. I think they were on for like 10 to 15 minutes together. And there wasn't a single question about any of this stuff. But it was a lot of respect for marriage, gay marriage, identity stuff. They were here's just like a little sample cut 16. But beneath that, just a, a deep wait. Wait, you have a minivan that provides the stability that is. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and that's another example of how marriage changes you and how kids change you. I never thought I would be a minivan person. No. Yeah, you and get now, there. You get there. The things kids we do, do it for to the you. love of our children. You know what right? is funny? I, I talked to Sanjay Gupta, and I have a whole thing about his. Because like, I'm Does a dad he have now, a and I have a minivan, and no. now he yeah. is a dad, and he has a minivan. I'll be there one day. Yeah, so uh, some hard-hitting journalism stuff there going on. And I look, you can have fun. You can talk about things that are not directly in your line of responsibility, but there weren't apparently any questions about some of this stuff. So maybe the calculation, which he makes very intentionally, it seems to me, that he won't really garner all that much criticism on this stuff or get asked a bunch of tough questions about it, maybe that's the right calculation on his part. Just want to bring that to your attention. People were asking me. There's my answer. That's how I feel about this stuff. We'll leave it at that. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. As we return on the Guy Benson Show, there's a bunch of new Fox News polling out. And I would give you some hardcore analysis about it in depth, but... Alas, all of that polling is already moot. It is no longer relevant or current because it was all in the field prior to former President Trump's game-changing major announcement of the virtual collectible trading cards for $99. We'll have to wait weeks to really gather the impact and assess it in the polling. They're saying it's sold out. That it's like 45,000 of them sold out. <laughs> Just incredible. Another hour coming up. Ken Sauce will Live from the most powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Kai Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free on demand every day after the show. GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcast.com. Wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media. At Guy Benson Show is the handle for both, uh, for both rather, Instagram and Twitter. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow Shedding 282 more points today, so a really rough finish to the week up on Wall Street. The Dow closing south of 33,000 at 32,920. And that market update sponsored by Americans for Prosperity, our partners and friends there, committing to empowering every single American to realize their own American dream by being champions of policies and expansions of freedom and opportunity. AmericansforProsperity.org is their website for more information. With that, let's get to Kim Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist at the Wall Street Journal, member of the editorial board at that newspaper, also a Fox News contributor. And Kim, great to have you back here. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you, Guy. So I want to start with uh, a conversation about a Grinch, this Sam Bankman-Fried character. Uh, You've got a new column out about 
this individual, the FTX collapse, and your angle, it's the one that I'm most interested in, is sort of like a political animal, his donations to mostly Democrats. He's saying that he gave to some Republicans through dark money as well. But just give us some of the big, broad strokes of your new column and how you're thinking about uh, this financial crypto scandal. Yeah. So just from a a bigger perspective, Sam Bankman-Fried emerged as the sixth largest donor of this midterm cycle, giving some $40 million to the midterm. Uh, He was also the second largest donor to Democrats behind only George Soros. Now, here's the problem. We get this SEC complaint this week and these DOJ charges, and the SEC complaint in particular says that what SBF did is take customer funds, uh, move them over into a side hustle he had called Alameda Research, and then essentially use that to pay for real estate and political donations, which is a, a longer way of saying that it looks as though he used money that was not his to pay for his politics. Um, now, in a normal situation like this guy, uh, it, it looks like dirty donations. Entities would be scrambling to return that money, uh, to get it back to the victims of this fraud or to give it to charity. We've had a few individual lawmakers, but the bigger entities here, and we're talking about some some really big players who are getting millions of dollars, are mom, most likely because the sums are so huge, it would not be easy for them to pay it back. Like, who are we talking about? Uh, Democratic National Committee. Uh, the outside groups that were affiliated with Pelosi and Schumer, who were responsible for getting uh, Senate uh, and uh, House Democrats elected, um, the official campaign arms of both the Democratic Party in the House and the Senate, uh, and a number of other outside PACs. Right, so kind of everyone, basically, basically everyone, basically all the big everyone. players on the Democratic side, tens of millions of dollars out of the billions that disappeared with whatever happened here with FTX, which obviously is looking criminal. We've gotten these uh, federal charges now uh, filed, and SBF has been arrested in the Bahamas. That's a whole separate issue that they're going to have to work out to get him back here. Now, he has said he's been sort of like weirdly glib about some stuff. He's like, oh, yeah, I donated to the Republicans too, but I did that uh, through dark money because I didn't want people to know that I was donating to them because a lot of people would have a hissy fit. Uh, because you're not supposed to donate to Republicans. And he said also all this ESG, you know, woke stuff. He said we do all of that because it's all performative and we have to do it in our circles. Like weirdly, it seems like he's a a fraudster and a liar who sometimes kind of tells the truth about things. Although I don't know. Do we have any confirmation he gave a bunch of money to Republicans through dark money? Because uh, I feel like everything he says ought to be fact checked uh, pretty significantly. We don't, and although here is an interesting little tip. In the Department of Justice charges this week, interestingly, there was a campaign finance charge in which essentially SBF was accused of using what are called straw donors, making donations to uh, political groups in names other than his own, which is illegal under federal law. Now, Mm -hmm. maybe that is an indication of what he was talking about. Maybe that's how he got away with giving money. Or it also just opens up the possibility that he gave a lot more to Democrats than what we've seen on the record, but was doing it in sort of underhanded methods. 
Yeah, I mean, he could have given, let's say, some money to the Republicans, dark money, and then a ton more money that we don't know about to the Democrats. And I think it's fair to ask questions. Did the Democrats look the other way in terms of oversight, even after the whole House of Cards started falling down, not really pressing this all that aggressively because he was such a generous donor to their campaign coffers? Um, I, I would imagine that's at least a very viable theory. Uh, for a number of these Democrats involved. And uh, it's a story we've been watching. I know you are, too. You've written about it in your column at The Wall Street Journal. And as events move forward, we'll perhaps have you back to talk more about it. In the meantime, Kim Strassel, let's talk about Twitter and Elon Musk. And I know uh, a number of journalists have been suspended. I, I logged on after I was off for quite a few hours last night, and people were losing their minds over what was happening. <laughs> And look, I'm a little concerned about some of what seems to be maybe arbitrary, some of the rules. Uh, It seems like kind of in some ways what was happening in the past, but in reverse. It's hard to take some of these journalists seriously who were totally ambivalent about, if not excited over capricious bans and suspensions and stuff when it was bad people that they didn't like, uh, you know, who were on the other end of it. Now they're on you know, on the receiving end, and, and they're like, this is a threat to the future of the country and the republic and all of it. It just feels like folks have maybe switched sides uh, on this exact same issue. Do you have a read on what Elon's up to? Are you uh, concerned or do you have pause about any of the stuff that he's doing here, or is it a little too early? So before I even talk about the suspensions in question here, just two things that kind of bothered me about this story, which go along with what you just said. First of all, the original write-ups of this last night were so disingenuous. These reporters all made it sound as though Elon Musk had just banned a bunch of reporters for no apparent reason whatsoever. Okay, baloney. Like, as we all well know now, uh, they were banned because there was an outfit that was providing real-time data of where Elon Musk was traveling and that some of these reporters linked to it. Now, Elon Musk is calling this doxing. And that gets to my other complaint is that the left continues to have an incredibly variable standard on what counts for doxing. Okay, I right. mean, when 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 the right is calling out someone and giving their name and address, well, that's doxing and you should be shamed and canceled, etc. When the left does it, apparently it's about transparency and good governance and keeping track of people. Um, and, and I really dislike that. Now, this question of whether or not Musk should have suspended these particular journalists, I think what makes everyone a little uneasy about this is that in part it had to do with him, right, in that uh, he kind of made up this rule because it was his airplane that was being tracked, and that seemed a little self-serving. I think it would have been better to have presented this in an overall, like, here's the definition of doxing, here's what we're not going to allow. And in that regard, it did feel a bit haphazard, and I I don't necessarily think he's wrong yet. I think he deserves the right to explain himself, but I does do think he needs to be a little more careful going forward. Yeah, and there's about some making rules. Yeah, some some red flags, and that's the thing for me because when things that appeared to be unfair and unjust were happening to conservatives, you had a bunch of leftists being like, "Oh well, go make your own Twitter," or you know, this <laughs> you know, you're making this up, or shadow banning isn't happening, or you know, it's a private company; they can do whatever they want. And now it's like, you know, they're treating, they're making their squealing like a lot of conservatives used to squeal. But I also feel like if you're going to advertise yourself as a platform that is open and transparent and all this stuff or free speech, 
uh, then you should at least have rules of the road that are fair and consistently applied. That was true then. It's also true now. I also think if we applied one of the other arguments that the left makes all the time, which is criticism, harsh criticism of someone puts them in danger, if it's if it's one of their own, uh, aren't they putting Elon Musk in physical danger? I mean, we can go round and round with all the hypocrisy. And I think to some extent it's kind of fun and delicious, but... We can get past that and probably need to. Kim Strassel, Merry Christmas. Wall Street Journal, we always appreciate having you here. we got a break. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So I want to remind you of something that happened not long ago. A couple months ago, you might recall that Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, a Democrat, had kind of surprised everyone out of nowhere. It seemed like Build Back Better or anything close to that bill had been killed and dead by Manchin with an assist from Kirsten Cinema. And then, surprise, surprise, Chuck Schumer and Manchin announced to the world that they have struck a deal. Now, it's not quite as much spending as Build Back Better, but it's still a huge amount of spending. And they're going to call it the Inflation Reduction Act. We covered it extensively here. It passed on a party line vote. Democrats only. Not a single Republican voted for this thing. Because as even Bernie Sanders admitted, in addition to many fact checkers, it was not actually going to reduce inflation. They could call it that. But that's not what the bill was really about. It was about historic investments in green energy and other related things. And, of course, doubling the size of the IRS. So enjoy that beefed-up enforcement, middle-class America, working-class America, and the new thresholds that the IRS now has the power to look at in certain transactions, much, much lower. These are not things that millionaires and billionaires have to worry about. These are things that you have to worry about. And now the IRS will be a lot bigger and stronger to come after you thanks to the Rescue Plan and then the Inflation Reduction Act, the two big Democratic achievements, quote-unquote, since Biden became president. Doesn't that feel like progress? Now, what happened here? Why did Joe Manchin all of a sudden decide to go along with this, especially as someone who had been talking a tough game about inflation for a long time? Well, apparently Schumer had convinced him that this would reduce inflation, Although, as I mentioned, Bernie Sanders was sort of like on the Senate floor chuckling, no, it won't. Bernie, of course, supported it. But Manchin had said, well, I have this other side deal that I have been promised. And if I don't get this promise fulfilled, well, there's going to be consequences. But the side deal is I'm going to get this energy permitting bill not attached to the Inflation Reduction Act, but at a date to be named soon. And it is going to happen, and the Democratic leadership promised me it was going to happen. And that's going to be great for West Virginia. It's going to be great for American energy independence. We've been trying to get this sort of stuff, and I think that this is a great trade-off. So full speed ahead. I'm a yes on Inflation Reduction Act, and down the line, I will also get this permitting reform. And here on this show, I expressed some very serious skepticism about that. And I had guests on the show, Republican members of the Senate. I was asking, well, isn't it possible— that he's going to get totally screwed. They'll get his crucial vote on this giant spending bill. And then they'll go through the motions and pretend like they are in good faith trying to get him 
this permitting bill that a lot of the left-wingers didn't want, but ultimately the left-wingers won't support it, and at the very least, it'll probably languish in the House. And these Republican senators said, yeah, I remember I had a conversation with Mitch McConnell on and off the air saying he thinks that Manchin got duped. But I guess the proof would be in the pudding. That was the general sense. We'll look for the next couple of weeks. Maybe in the lame duck session, they were talking about trying to attach this permitting to essential must-pass legislation like the defense bill. Well, guess what? The defense bill just passed. And guess what wasn't in it? Manchin tried to get it injected into the defense bill, and that failed on a vote of 47 to 47. So he was 13. He needed 60 votes. He was 13 votes shy of what he would have needed to include that provision in the defense bill. Now, who knows what could happen down the pike here, but this was maybe the last best opportunity for Manchin to get this. Maybe if there's some big omnibus coming, but it really looks like Joe Manchin got sold a bill of goods. They were able to trick him into giving them his vote that he wasn't eager to give on the spending, And he, I guess, trusted Schumer and company enough to say, well, I'll get this other thing that a lot of my party doesn't want down the line. I trust them. Now, you can say that's too bad. He's been treated badly. Poor guy was fooled. At some point, though, I mean, you're a U.S. senator. You've been in Washington for quite a while. You've been around the block. You were the governor. You should know better. Joe Manchin seems like a nice guy. Joe Manchin's a lot better than almost any of the Democrats on Capitol Hill on most issues. He is actually a moderate Democrat in an era where very few of those exist anymore. But if you're the voters of West Virginia, he's up for reelection in two years. He gave the Biden administration and his party some giant legislative victory in exchange for what? A promise not worth the paper it wasn't even printed on? It was like some gentleman's handshake, basically, in effect. And if he is that naive, and if it turns out that this stays dead and buried and he doesn't get the big thing that he was waving around as a big victory for West Virginia in the deal that he made with his party, if that doesn't happen and it fully blows up in his face, as it looks like is the case right now, I think West Virginia voters in a very Republican state have to think long and hard in two years, is this someone, even as a moderate, quote-unquote, that we want to have representing us, if he's going to get rolled by this party that they overwhelmingly oppose in that state? The Democrats get crushed in that state in the presidential races. Manchin has carved out this different reputation for himself, and he's taken some tough votes against his party, but, man, what a humiliation and betrayal this was. And if that's the way they're going to treat him in the Democratic Party and he's going to stay in that party... What's the point of having Senator Joe Manchin representing that state anymore? Probably time to put a Republican in that seat who's not in any danger of handing Chuck Schumer a win in exchange for nothing except just like a little ethereal, mystical promise that has been, at least up to this point, entirely predictably broken. So he tried again. He failed again. Largely because of his party, Republicans aren't really rushing to help him either. This is the bed that he made for himself. And I think the voters of West Virginia need to be paying attention. And based on the polling that we've seen since he sided with Biden and with the D.C. Democrats on this, it seems like they are paying attention.
he went from quite popular in the state across party lines to tanking on approval rating and head-to-head. So 2024 might not be a pleasant experience for Joe Manchin. We'll see what he does. First of all, in these next couple weeks, if he can pull some rabbit out of a hat legislatively, and then in the coming years, what's this guy going to do? Going to retire? Going to switch parties? Going to go for it again as a Democrat in that state based on what just happened? Not the best options. And I might feel a little bit worse for him if it weren't so predictable. But what appears to be happening, with that little asterisk still, is not only predictable, it was predicted by me and many others. So just an update on that front on The Guy Benson Show, which returns right after this break. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue. It's The Guy Benson Show. And this is not exactly a happy segment on a happy topic on a Friday heading into Christmas. I did, in passing, make reference to it yesterday. So I was planning on bringing this to you. It's a follow-up on something that we talked about recently on the same subject. And it's not something that I'm really on a personal crusade about. It's just something happening up in Canada that has been brought to my attention recently. And the more I read about it, the more disturbing it is. You can go back and listen to a previous show when I talked about this. I gave my views on euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide and how it's nuanced and difficult. Very thorny ethical moral issue involving choice and the value placed on life. What does human dignity look like? What does that mean? One of my biggest concerns and hesitations around these issues is the slippery slope, which is not always a great argument. If A, B, and C, then maybe X, Y, and Z down the line. It's not always uniformly a valid argument. In fact, often it's not. But in this case, I think it is proven to be real. The phenomenon of a slippery slope when the government sanctions death this way has been established. It's not a hypothetical concern. It is something that has played out virtually everywhere that these kinds of laws have been enacted, where physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia is legalized under very strict circumstances. Those strictures, those restrictions, tend to get looser and looser and head to a very dark place. And right now, Canada is the epicenter. It's been a lot of focus on the Netherlands. There are some parts of the United States and the Pacific Northwest in particular where this occasionally will arise as a controversy. But in Canada, they are poised to become, and in some ways have already become, the most permissive euthanasia regime in terms of what they have on the books in the whole world. And the results have been, to me, very disturbing. So I had not seen this piece It came out this fall at the Free Press, and it delved into some of these examples. So I want to follow up and read some of this to you. The headline from this journalist, Rupa Subramanya, 
is what do you do when you discover your son has made an appointment for his death? On September 7th of this year, Margaret Marcilla called Joshua Tepper, the doctor who planned to kill her son. Marcilla is 46. She lives outside Toronto with her husband and daughter, who's a nursing student. She had known that her 23-year-old son, Keanu, was depressed. He was diabetic. He had lost his vision in one eye. He didn't have a job or a girlfriend or much of a future. And Marcilla asked her daughter to log into Keanu's email account. She had access to it. He, the son, never shared anything with his mother, what he was thinking, where he was going, and Marcilla was scared. That was when Marcilla learned that Keanu had applied for and in late July been approved for, quote, medical assistance in dying, a.k.a. MAID, a.k.a. assisted suicide. His death was scheduled for September 22nd, two weeks later. Before we go any further, let me just highlight a few things. Some of the arguments that are made in favor of euthanasia and assisted suicide are that why are we forcing terminally ill people, like late-stage cancer sufferers, to suffer further? They're in great pain. There's no chance of recovery. Why don't we let them die with dignity on their own timetable? That's generally the powerful argument that I think is appealing to a lot of people, just in terms of fairness and that sort of thing, self-determination. But as we've seen in Canada and elsewhere, the boundaries of what gets you in the door for this type of death have expanded to the point that the boundaries almost don't exist. In this case, it's a 23-year-old man. So he'd be, if he had gone to college, one year removed from college. At the very start of his adult life, he suffered from depression, had diabetes, was losing vision in one of his eyes. They say he didn't have a job, didn't have a girlfriend at the time, quote, or much of a future. That's the way it was sort of portrayed. Who is writing off the future of a 23-year-old? I know he obviously needs help and may have written off his own future long ago. Now he wants to officially end his future. By being killed. But I think there's something quite sick about looking at a 23 year old who has issues, no doubt, but is not suffering from an incurable late stage illness and just sort of declaring that person not to have a future and then manifesting that declaration in, okay, well, now we will kill him at his request. Imagine being this mother and discovering. That your 23-year-old has made an appointment with a doctor to die. So she reached out to the doctor, terrified. Quote, she had tried to do everything for her son, but it had been rough for him. She and his dad had gotten divorced when Kiana was still a kid. On his 16th birthday, she had given him a BMW. When he was 17, he had been in a bad car accident. He wasn't up to college. He smoked a ton of weed. He'd lived with his dad, then with his mom, now with his sister. Wherever he went, whatever he did, he was unhappy. I mean, this sounds like someone who needs help. This does not sound like a 23-year-old who should die. So as I said, she reached out to the doctor and was able to piece this all together. This was going to happen in a matter of weeks, and she realized she had just over two weeks to stop her son 
from dying. The story goes on to talk about how Canada is, quote, poised to become the most permissive euthanasia regime in the world, which is the phrase that I used before because it's accurate. In 2015, this is the slippery slope, how fast this has gone. In 2015, not long ago, Canada's Supreme Court ruled that assisted suicide was constitutional. In June of 2016, Parliament passed a bill, the Medical Assistance in Dying Act, which became law of the land. Anyone who could show their death was reasonably foreseeable was eligible. Now, I would point out that all of our deaths are reasonably foreseeable because everyone dies. But that's obviously not what they were getting at. It was like, this is a likely death that's going to be happening somewhat soon, I think was the gist behind it in 2016. In 2017, the first full year where this was on the books, the first year where this was administered, about 2,800 people opted for assisted suicide in the country. By 2021, a few years later, that figure had jumped to more than 10,000, accounting for more than 3% of all deaths in Canada that year. And in some provinces, nearly 5% of deaths were these assisted suicides. Why the dramatic increase? The story says, over the past few years, doctors have taken an increasingly liberal view when it comes to defining reasonably foreseeable deaths. Then last year, the government amended the original legislation. Here's literal slippery slope stuff, stating that one could apply for medically assisted aid and death, even if one's death were not reasonably foreseeable. This second track of applicants simply had to show that they had a condition that was, quote, intolerable to them, which is such a broad definition and so subjective and personal that it's meaningless. And now next March, so this coming March, the Canadian government is scheduled to expand the pool of eligible suicide seekers to include the mentally ill and, quote, mature minors. According to Canada's Department of Justice, parents are generally entitled to make treatment decisions on their children's behalf. The mature minor doctrine, however, allows children deemed sufficiently mature to make their own treatment decisions. The federal government in Canada does not define mature, nor does it specify who determines whether one is mature. On top of that, the doctrine varies from one province to another. But in a few months, the government of Canada, already now the epicenter of this death culture, they're poised to expand even further the eligibility for assisted suicide, euthanasia. People suffering from mental illness. I mean, talk about playing into a stigma. And almost encouraging it in some ways. And to mature minors. Where the definition of who counts as mature under the age of 18 is kind of hazy by definition. There is a very real possibility that in Canada, a supposedly civilized country, there will be children, minor children, deemed by some bureaucrat to be mature enough who will schedule their own suicide deaths at the hands of a doctor approved by the government without the knowledge or consent 
of that child's parents. I know this seems completely impossible. I know this sounds like it's got to be something out of a dystopian movie or novel or something like that. This is real. So there's no way they're actually going to do that. I think you could have made that same skeptical argument across multiple steps of this slide that Canada is in the middle of. And this goes to the argument about slippery slopes on this front in particular, where once the government and society signals strongly and officially that human life is less valuable than it actually is, you can go from point A to point D to point Z awfully fast. From adults with reasonably foreseeable deaths due to very severe incurable illnesses to children for any number of reasons in the span of less than a decade. That's the trajectory in Canada. This story at the Free Press quotes Dr. Ellen Warner, an oncologist in Toronto, treats cancer. She says, my objection to MAID from day one was that there was no way we would be able to avoid this slippery slope because these aren't black and white cases. She said, I'm 100% against this. I'm an old-fashioned Hippocratic Oath kind of doctor. Do no harm. You have other doctors who I guess are more than happy to just inject a lethal cocktail of drugs into mentally ill people, into children. If they, quote unquote, consent, it is disturbing. There's another example, another anecdote given in this story about a daughter and her mother. The daughter is 21. Her mother is 53. They both have serious health issues. They're also struggling financially. And eventually they kind of looked at each other and said, I don't think we can make ends meet. We can't really survive anymore. Let's go ahead and schedule our deaths. Then there's this part as well. This is where it gets even creepier. It has not been lost, the story writes, on government officials that medical assistance in death could save them a good bit of money. In October 2020, the Office of the Parliamentary Budget Officer issued a report stating that MAID could cut health care costs by over $66 million. There's also a paper that came out of the University of Calgary predicting that MAID could slash health care costs in the country by as much as $100 million annually. So when you have these bean counters in the government, and it's a government health care system where the monopoly is run by the government, and keeping people alive and comfortable can be very expensive, and we've already established in Canada, the government officially, that they don't really value human life that much anymore. Then you start to see, and we talked about this when we last discussed this broad set of issues, some government officials sort of running the math and saying, oh, gosh, you know what? If we just killed a bunch more people with their consent, of course, for whatever reason they might have, well, that'll save us an awful lot of money. And some of our strains that we have on our health care system, the long waiting lists, the high costs, well, we could maybe alleviate some of those challenges and stress points death is a lot cheaper than keeping some of these people alive and helping them live their lives 
And we gave you the example last time about the woman who didn't want to die, who's a disabled veteran, I believe, who is a Paralympian in Canada, who wanted one of those chairlifts to go up her stairs to make her life easier at home. And the government in Canada came back with her saying, well, we can't really afford to give you that. Sorry, but may we offer you death? And she was horrified. She blew the whistle and all these politicians are, oh, they're they're very upset. How can that happen? This is this is not acceptable, except it is acceptable based on their own actions, what they have wrought up there with their laws. This is inevitable. These are consequences that started here and very rapidly went to there. And the there is ugly and dark and creepy and Orwellian. And unfortunately, it sounds like our Canadian neighbors to the north are about to go even farther down the dark path. All in the name of compassion and choice, of course. Not a pleasant subject, obviously. But I read this story. It really bothered me. I hope you can understand why. And I wanted to share it with you. So I've done so. I want you to think about this at least. We will lighten things up. I do promise. It is a Friday. Let's take a break on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago on our podcast. We've got a great advertiser right now, Omaha Steaks, ahead of the holidays. And we are reminding everyone that in addition to all the huge savings already available at omahasteaks.com, If you plug in my name, my code, G-U-Y, Guy, at checkout, you get an additional $40 off of your order with a minimum order that may apply. But it's a great deal, huge savings. And, Christine, I know that you guys are fans of Omaha Steaks in your household. I know Bobby used to work there to make some extra money. And it sounds like he's been going hog wild with the Guy discount code in terms of gift giving. Yes, he has. Last week was our huge Omaha steaks purchase on the website, and it really is amazing. Half off with your code also, another 40 off. We got our, oh, I hope they're not. Turn, if my in-laws are listening right now, please turn down the volume. We got our in-laws so (laughs) many packages because they just love Omaha. And you know what my mother-in-law loves? She loves their breakfast sausage. It is delicious if you have not tried it. We got my mom all of her coconut shrimp and her chicken and everything like that. It's just, I'm telling you, you get this. Well, keep that secret. All right, we'll keep that secret here just among us friends, and hopefully the word doesn't leak out. But it's a great value. The products are absolutely delicious. OmahaSteaks.com at checkout. Plug in my name, Guy. Enter that as your discount code. $40 off in addition. Minimum order may apply. That's OmahaSteaks.com. It's the last weekend here coming up of this promotion, so we wanted to remind you of it, especially if you might be behind on your gift giving as I am. The Guy Benson Show will be back with our final hour. Janice Dean coming up. Stay with us. It's straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour on a Friday. Happy Friday. Merry Christmas. 
I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day on demand, including bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Follow us on social at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and also on Instagram, or follow me personally if you'd like, at Guy P. Benson on both of those platforms. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic. I was going to say I'm going to have one tonight, except I think we're still out after our Christmas party. Just completely gone from the house. We'll have to get some more. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Find out where they're sold near you as they expand due to popular demand. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Well, as it is a Friday, close to Christmas time, we thought it might be a good opportunity to have some fun with one of our favorite guests and friends, our colleague Janice Dean, senior meteorologist at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author. She's got a new book coming out, I Am the Storm, next month, so next year, early 2023, January. And she's also host of the Janice Dean podcast, most importantly, Puppy Mom to Lola, a Bedlington Terrier. And Janice, welcome back to the show. Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas, my friend. Thank you for having me on again. Lola says hi. Hi, Lola. Oh, what a sweetie. <laughs> now, we have so many very important things to discuss over the course of this next segment or two, by which I mean not terribly important at all, but fun. My first <laughs> question, and this is crucial, have you yet recovered physically, emotionally, spiritually from meeting John Stamos? I forgot that I met him last week, actually. (laughs) Sorry. You did not forget. Now I remember, and it was a special moment. It was magical. I have to say he was very gracious. He stopped and took pictures with everyone that was in the studio before he, you know, made a beeline for his car. Oh, that's very generous. And I have to tell you, I think you had posted on social media the photo, the selfie that you took with him. Wyatt from our team here then screenshotted it and sent it around to our group text, like, guess who's in the building? And I think producer Christine may have fainted, and she decided not to come try to find him because she would perhaps be deceased, and we didn't want that. Christine, is that correct? Would you have lost it completely? I honestly, like, I'm going to lose it just knowing Janice met him. Oh. I wish it's I had one degree of actually, separation. We didn't know he was going to come because he plays with the Beach Boys, right? So the Beach Boys came in uh, with Mike Love, who was – amazing he came on the janice dean podcast last week as well and so they met john stamos i think in the 80s because he was a huge beach boy fan uh and knew where mike love lived and would like ride his bike every day past their house and just be in awe of the fact that mike li- uh, mike love lived near him in california so they had this relationship and if you remember the you know do you remember the video for tom cruise's film cocktail kokomo John Stamos was in that video, and I think that's kind of how they, you know, really got to know each other through hmm. that video and, and, and performing together. So they've been performing together for a long time, and it just so happened that John Stamos had some time and came and performed on Fox and Friends with the Beach Boys last week. Okay, I did not know that because having the Beach Boys in studio is kind of a big deal, like a very big deal unto itself. They're huge. And then to have Stamos with them, I mean, what a supernova of excitement and celebrity all in one day. You never know what you're going to get over at Fox and Friends, and that's part of the thrill, I'm sure, of working on that show every day. Janice, I did have a curiosity about you and your family as we approach Christmas. Do you have any fantastic, memorable, cherished, or perhaps even unique family traditions around Christmas? 
Well, listen, I grew up in Canada, as you know, so every Christmas there was guaranteed a lot of snow. Uh, I remember fondly, my dad actually had one of the first USA-made fake Christmas trees. I think, I don't know when oh. it actually, yes, like in the 40s, I think, they, they started Were those legal in Canada, trees. fake Christmas so, trees? <laughs> so he brought that tree to Canada, and we had it for several decades after that. And so I just remember, and it was like, you know, it was quite a production to put that fake Christmas tree together. It was like branch by branch, and they had to go into like a numbered hole in the in the stump in the in the you know the trunk of the tree. And so it was quite a production. My dad used to do it. it would take like at least an hour to put it together. And then we had all these ornaments, decorations. The 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 angel that we put on top of the tree was in my dad's family when he was a little boy. So I just remember that, you know, spending time with my father, who's no longer with us, God rest his soul. But it was just such a fun event to get, you know, the boxes out. And I know the, the real Christmas tree lovers are saying, oh, fake Christmas tree. But yep. it can't. Economically, I mean, that tree was probably like over the years, 40 years. How much did we save, you know, in money and uh, <laughs> buying a new Christmas tree? And it was just, I don't know. That was So that was a big family tradition. And my mom always makes, you know, a wonderful spread every year. We're going back uh, for Christmas this, uh, this year to just outside of Toronto, which is where my mom lives. So, you know, that's wonderful. She loves to cook. She'll meet Lola for the first time. Lola's Ooh. going to Canada. I have, like, follow-ups here. Number one, what is traditional Canadian Christmas food? Is it just a giant platter of poutine? <laughs> Actually, that's not a bad idea to add that. I mean, I mean, my mom does make mashed potatoes. We should just put the poutine in there as well. She actually stuffs the turkey with this savory um, kind of, uh, what do you call it, like uh, herbs, I guess savory herbs from Newfoundland, which is where she's from. So she makes this wonderful stuffing um, with this magical concoction that comes from Newfoundland. And so she's very proud of that, and it tastes very, stuffing is one of my favorite things about the turkey. Uh, and she makes it great. And then she also makes uh, these Nanaimo squares, which are also Canadian. And if I tell you what, the, it's like a layer of chocolate graham with butter cream icing and then a thick layer of chocolate on top. It's unbelievable. They're called Nanaimo squares. They are from Canada, and, and, mm. I, and my mom makes them every year for us. I had never heard of that, but I might need to look into it for the purposes <laughs> of science. Meanwhile, you talked about the fake Christmas tree, the artificial tree which brings back memories of your father. Have you personally stuck with the fake tree? Like, do you have a fake tree up in your house right now? Yes, we have never had a real uh, tree. And I, and again, uh. I know, I know, but here's the thing. My husband's a fireman and real Christmas trees, there's a problem. There's a hazard with that, you know, and we've got the needles. I mean, does Roy go near the, the real Christmas tree? Is there a problem no. with the Christmas tree needles? Not at all. Although the funniest thing that ever happened involving a Christmas tree and Roy, now that you've reminded me of this story. So my best friend, Mary Catherine Ham, she and her husband, Steve, yes. have a huge Belgian Malinois, like the kind of guard dog that like took out al-Baghdadi, like that type of military police dog. And he is the loveliest, sweetest dog, but he looks terrifying. Like he looks like he could just completely rip your throat out. That's not the way he is. But compared to Roy, a little floofy, lamb-like Bedlington Terrier, you know, one of them looks like a vicious killer and one of them looks like, you know, a cushion or a stuffed animal. Yes. And so a couple of years ago at Christmas, we had invited Mary Catherine and Steve over to the house for dinner. 
And they said, that's great. We're not bringing any of the kids. Can we bring Scout, the dog? And we're like, yeah, bring Scout over. So I was actually still at Fox. I was doing a hit here in the studios. I was on my way home. I got home, and they had a story to tell me. So Roy, being a little bit protective of the house, often when another dog shows up, Roy races over to his food and eats it all just to make sure no one eats his food. Uh, that's, that's one move that he has. And in this case, he saw this gigantic, towering creature walk into his territory, his turf, and Roy made a beeline for the Christmas tree and then, shall we say, marked his territory. Oh. He, because in fairness to him, he has not had an accident inside in many years. This wasn't an accident. He does his business outside, usually on trees. Here's a tree that happens to be in the house. What is he supposed to do? And he wanted everyone to know this is my house, my tree, and it's a real tree. And so that's what he did. And they all just looked at each other like, did Roy just do that? And I think it's hilarious. (laughs) It is. is, And he was watering the tree. So he did his part. Very thoughtful. Now, I do have to ask you this question because I'll admit and sort of plead ignorance on this one. Do you all do the elf on the shelf situation at your house? We did it one year, and then he magically disappeared. Okay, so I had no idea what Elf on the Shelf was until yesterday. I was in the green room getting ready for special report. I had seen, like, okay, there's an elf, and you you put him on, like, you know. Well, like, you get the little elf. He's on the mantle, and he's looking at the kids to make sure that they're, you know, behaving or something. That is as far as my mind wanted to go in terms of caring about what this phenomenon was. But then some of my fellow guests were talking about Elf on the Shelf and talking about what a hassle it was. Like, what, what do you mean a hassle? And then they explained mm-hmm. what it entails for the, let's say, management uh, yes. of the elf. And if you have any little kids at home who don't want any spoilers, maybe earmuffs time. But, Christine, very briefly, can you explain why this is a pain in the neck for parents? I am brand new to this. So the elf isn't just sitting on a shelf watching your children. The elf, um, when he or she comes back, or they, I'm sorry, come back from <laughs> the North Pole... Uh, at night, they're doing little sneaky things, and they're in different situations. So uh, this morning, our elf, Sweetie, uh, unbeknownst to our daughter, Megan, had gone potty in her bathroom with little chocolate chips that someone oh, may have found. My. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, like, disgusting. So, like, what is the point of this? She gets into mischief. So one night, she took Barbie's Corvette for a little spin. Um, one night she took Megan's lips or mommy's lipstick and wrote on a mirror saying, hi, now, Megan. Can I just say something here? Isn't yeah. the elf on the shelf supposed to be watching the kids to see if they're behaving themselves? This elf sounds like, like, you know, is not a very good example to your child. <laughs> it's true, Janice. She hangs from um, light fixtures. Oh, she, she's crazy. Megan made her a little bracelet from her bracelet making kit. And Sweetie showed up the other day with it on her hat. She thought it was a headband. I mean, oh. she's a crazy elf, but she does okay, watch but- out. And she goes back uh, at night at some point. We're not really sure when to the North Pole. And she tells Santa, you know, what Megan has been doing, naughty or nice. And then she gets back. To our apartment in time. Wait, I just, okay, I'm sorry, and I, I swear this is not a bit. I am truly trying to understand this. You have this little fake elf who watches <laughs> the fake. kids like spies. Not it's fake. like surveillance. What? Oh, okay, so it's a very real elf. A very real elf who's like a spy in your mm-hmm. house. It's like yeah. surveillance state for Santa. And the elf watches the kids, reports back to Santa every night, then comes back and does like mischief night. 
and something naughty at the house, and then like, yeah. what's in it? I what's in it for the kid, and what's in it for the parents? So for the, the kid, should be fired. <laughs> for the kid, it's just excitement of where is she, he, they. You know, uh, mm. one day, um, sweetie thought that our flour, our you know, that we used to cook and bake with, was snow. So she made some snow angels in there oh, on the counter. My goodness. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of work for whoever's in charge of this. And Janice, it sounds like you maybe <laughs> figure that out after one year, and your elf <laughs> retired. Yeah, I think Santa was just like, this elf is retired. Like my husband, he wants to retire immediately. <laughs> I Okay, I'm starting to understand this more, and I think that if I ever have kids, Elf on the Shelf is going to be next from day yeah, one. I just like, I, I think it's going to be a hard pass. It's it's hard to do. I mean, it's, it's hard to obviously keep control of some of these awful elves. <laughs> yeah, apparently some worse than others. And surprise of all surprises, <laughs> producer Christine has an extra bad elf, extra mischievous, <laughs> All right, Janice, uh, another key question that actually, believe it or not, pertains to your actual job, because we haven't really been doing much of that here. Uh, Odds of a white Christmas across the country. It looks like there's a storm brewing maybe for next week. I'm a white Christmas kind of guy. We haven't had one in a long time. Should I get my hopes up or not really? You know what? I'm looking at this right now, and you know me. I don't like to go five days out, right? Anything past five days, I fully admit, is a coin toss, okay? I'm just saying that, but— okay. Looking at Fox Weather right now, one of their lead stories is this strong, highly impactful possibility of a winter storm that could bring a white Christmas to the Northeast and maybe even as far south as the D.C. area. So it is Mm. a possibility. You know, I'm not going to place bets on anything right now, but I will say the weather pattern is going to be conducive for the potential of ah. some pretty big storm systems. <laughs> okay, you're very, you're very careful about qualifying all of that. There were about yeah. 18 caveats in there, but Correct. I won't get my hopes up too much, but I'm, I'm feeling a little tingle of Christmas magic, and it has nothing to do with an elf on a shelf or anything like that. It's Janice Dean and her very tentative forecast. That's not really a forecast. I'll have to follow your forecasts. What, next week as we get closer, we'll have a better sense of things? Yeah, I think on Monday I'll have a much better uh, sense of what's going to happen. Janice, stand by. Let's take a very quick break. It's the happy hour. Janice Dean is my guest. Christmas time edition. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Janice Dean, our guest here on the Guy Benson Show. Happy hour on this Friday. Let's come full circle here, Janice Dean. We opened by discussing John Stamos and the Beach Boys performing at Fox and Friends and what a fun and unpredictable and wild ride that show can be every morning and how it's you know such a fun thing for so many viewers. I do want to just quickly beat the drum a little bit for our network. I saw that for the seventh consecutive year, Fox News is number one in all of cable, not just cable news, but all of cable, the number one most watched network and also a really good year for Fox business too. So huge kudos to everyone involved on that network. And I know a lot of us do both, but like the management and the top anchors, it's all exciting, but to be number one in the entire cable world, ESPN, TNT, all of those competitors for seven straight years is a real achievement. And the number one thanks has to go out to our audience for sticking with us and being so loyal. Based on your experience and your career here at Fox, what do you attribute the longevity and the popularity and the loyalty to? 
we're all authentic, I think, you know, and people can see that we're the morning show that we do. People invite us into their homes every morning. And you're not going to do that if you don't trust the people you are listening, getting information from. Right. Including weather, including sports, including the news. Steve Ainsley, Brian, they've been there from the well. Ainsley's been there for a little less than I have. I think 15 years. I've been there almost 18 years. Steve and Brian have been there since the very beginning, and we all genuinely like one another. And I think you can tell that, right? I feel like they're part of my second family. And I think that's the special sauce is in this business, sometimes you don't get authenticity. You know, people can be very different than they are on television in real life. And what, what you're getting is the real deal. Like, I genuinely love you guy benson i mean i do and i i think that people can see that and feel that and that's why we are the number one cable channel in the u.s because well you're you're just assuming janice that my affection for you is real uh and it might be (laughs) just as real as your christmas tree janice dean but no we love you here and we value you and so many others as our colleagues we always love having you on You bring an extra ray of light to this show whenever you're here, even when we're talking about difficult subjects, unlike today. So please, from us to you and your family, and especially Lola, extra scritches to her. Merry Christmas. If we don't talk to you before the new year, happy new year. And we look forward to many more segments and fun ahead. Oh, I love it. And thank you to your listeners as well. Merry Christmas. God bless. And uh, I love you very much. The feeling, obviously, is mutual. Janice Dean, senior meteorologist here at Fox News. Her new book, I Am the Storm, is coming out next month. It's The Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. We will be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the happy hour. To start today's show, we had here in studio Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, who hopes to be the next Speaker of the House. Wide-ranging conversation with Kevin McCarthy. Here's part of it. Great to see you. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for coming in. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for having me. This is a great studio. All right, so let's talk about this date that I would imagine you have circled on your calendar. (laughs) Not Christmas, not Christmas Eve, January 3rd. It's going to be the speaker vote. You have the overwhelming support of Republicans in the House to become the next speaker. Republicans have somewhat narrowly won back the House of Representatives in the new Congress, but as has been discussed endlessly in the media, there's this group of holdouts, sort of hardcore holdouts on sort of the right flank of the party, and they're saying, never Kevin, we're not going to vote for him, period. And because of how close the margin is, I mean, they matter, right? So what's happening here? What's the end game for them, do you think? Well, hopefully the end game is everybody finds a way to get together. It's it's not just going to be speaker votes. It's how you're going to be governed for the next two years because any five members can stop anything. It doesn't matter where you... fill out on the philosophical um, place out there. Um, Look, in the last two cycles, I've been leader for four years. The Senate lost seats. The governors have lost seats, Republican. The president lost. We have won both cycles. We won 13 seats last time, over nine this time. Our goal was to win the majority, stop the Biden agenda, and fire Nancy Pelosi. We achieved all three. Um, we're going to have to find a way that we all work together. It's probably a new train of thought for us. 
And you know they don't they don't they don't hand gavels out by size. You, you don't get a small, medium, and large based upon the size of your majority. You get the exact same gavel. We'll have the exact same majority that the Democrats have today. Right. So we are the only ones standing in the way of more socialism. But it's not just us able to stand in the way. We can govern. Now a lot of things can happen on that very first day. We can get this. You can't do anything in, until you get the speaker vote. So you want to get the speaker vote. You got to put the rules package in. But then you start setting up the committees, and there's a lot of things. If you want to secure the border, you want to become energy independent, you want a parent's bill of rights, you want accountability. You can't put any subpoenas out. You can't uh, go to try to change a course of history when it comes to the border and others. And Well, the whole roadmap that you guys put out, you can't start down the road unless there's a Speaker of the House. You can't even swear in the members until the Speaker of the House decision is made. Which brings me back to the question, though, if you have these guys and they seem recalcitrant, they're dug in, they're saying they're not going to vote for you. It's like, OK, well, then what? Right. Because you're not going to have a Democratic speaker in a well, Republican House. You know, that was kind of already decided, though. This is this is the challenge. After the election, we come together in a conference and people run for who wants to be the speaker nominee. OK, you're in the majority. Dan uh, Crenshaw yesterday on the show said it's like the primary it within is the, primary. the caucus. It's the primary within the caucus. I want 85 percent of the vote. Seems so, decisive. Yeah, so you seem like that would be over. Um, and what could happen here, though, too, if you haven't, we haven't witnessed this in quite some time, but in the past, every speaker's had some challenge, right? Inside that primary, I think, did Paul have 37 people vote against him? Pelosi had 40-some. And the, the last couple of times, speaker races have been close, um, but never to the point that you didn't get it on the first round. Um, if that's not the case, nothing happens. Staff doesn't get hired. Committees don't start. You just go around this place. But I think really to the American public, it's going to weaken the Republicans. Sure. Right? Are we prepared to start at the first day? Do we look like we're beginning? Next year is a presidential year. We only have so much window to govern, to really lay out our agenda, to really change what the American people has asked us to. And if we spend more time on this, it's only going to bog us down. Are these guys asking you because i know you're having all these meetings constantly in your office you're just like you know cajoling and trying it's like let's come together let's be a happy family they're like well we'll meet with you but we're not that happy are they asking you for concessions can you give them certain things yeah, there's, there's a number of things Pe- people want to see a different structure i'm all for that and in, in a world where you only have a five seat majority everybody's got power mm-hmm. so it's not like take for instance okay say five or six of them say they don't want to vote for me well, they don't get to det- they can determine something doesn't happen, but they don't determine something does happen. Those five, six don't get to pick the speaker. I got 200 are sitting with me. So who are they going to pick? My full interview with the potential next speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, in studio today, available online if you missed any of it. Start to finish, GuyBensonShow.com. Also, the entire program on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, when we come back, a little trip around the TV dial, what we're watching, what we love, and maybe not so much, that conversation straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. Happy Friday, Guy Benson Show. If you're listening on the broadcast, that is, of course, the iconic Golden Girls theme song. Thank you for being a friend. Even I know that as someone who hasn't ever watched the Golden Girls. Unlike producer Christine, who is a mega fan, 
And before we get to her story, let me remind you that the podcast here at this show, Free Every Day, GuyBensonShow.com, bonus Benson on the weekend, that's coming up tomorrow and Sunday. Had to get that in, Christine, before we went full bore into Golden Girls. You went to some sort of Golden Girls-related activity session. I don't even know what to call it. Some themed party or Golden Girls experience. Explain what you did. It was called the Golden Girls Pop-Up Kitchen. Uh, I First of all, I am in shock, in shock that you have never watched at least one episode of the Golden I Girls. I know. You shame me occasionally for Ooh. this. And it's one of the rare occasions where I actually do feel a little bit guilty about something you're giving me a hard time for because it just seems like I am missing out a little bit on the Golden Girls. But the pop-up kitchen was where and what did this entail? So the pop-up kitchen was in New York City. It started last year in Beverly Hills in Los Angeles. And I tried to get tickets when I was out in L.A., but it didn't It didn't work out the timing. Um, so what they do is they find a space in these large cities. It was in L.A., now it's in New York, and I think they're heading to Chicago and Miami. And they build kind of like an epic place for you to go have brunch, but like they build the kitchen of where the Golden Girls, you know, part of the set. They build the lanai. These are all things that are really super important to the fans. Um, and you can go and have breakfast, brunch, lunch there, which is brunch is what Bobby and I did. And we, quote unquote, sat in their lanai. And there's all this memorabilia of the Golden Girls. They have um, another, a bar that they went to called the Rusty Anchor. And it's just really cool because you're sitting amongst people that you know are have such a love for the same thing that you do. So, you know, you get to talking with a lot of people. And the brunch is Golden Girls themed. Everything has an inside joke to it. And it was pretty cool. But I have to say, very expensive. So whoever thought of this and whoever's charging this amount of money for something like that, they're a genius because they're going to make money for, off of people like me. Was it um, worth it? So to me, it was. Uh, I don't know for a lot of people. Like my husband was like, oh, like cookie. We definitely could have spent our money elsewhere. But I mean. Were there any of the Golden Girls present? That's a joke, right? No. They're all dead. They're all dead? Yes. Oh, well, that's a shame. I did not know that. I know Betty White had died. Yeah, no, they're 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 all in that golden heaven up oh, in the sky. No. So they're they're all present in spirit. Yeah, I mean, think about it. They were in their seventies probably when the show aired and the show first started. When in was 80, that? Eighty four to ninety two. Okay, yeah. So that does make sense. I guess I hadn't thought about it. This is how little I know about the show. I knew Betty White was in it. And she went to, what, almost 100, so that's an outlier. Okay, yeah, the, the math checks out, and I guess there's still a very strong fan base, including women of a certain age and gays, let's be Yes, it, it, it's, you're right. I think what happened was um, after it went off air, I mean, I had watched it as a child with my grandparents. Sometimes my mom and dad would send me over there on Saturday so they could go out. So I, I remember fondly watching it, you know, when it actually aired. But then later on, it started airing on the Lifetime Network and the Hallmark Channel, and, like, it just oh, yeah. took a life of its own. Oh, the syndicated reruns oh. is often where shows really take off, and mm-hmm. I think there's probably a strong nostalgia vibe going on there as well. So I'm glad that you had a nice time. You've been really eager to talk about that experience. We want to make sure that we got it in this week because it's already, what, it happened last weekend. So we wanted to keep the stories fresh here on the program. I did on the TV 
front, I did want to note, I saw this headline. There's a show called Stanley Tucci's Searching for Italy. And it stars, as you might have guessed, Stanley Tucci, famous actor. And he is just himself going around basically to each region of Italy and eating their food and talking to like mom and pop restaurant owners or famous chefs or people who are putting new spins on old classics. And it is just a delightful show. He's 100% Italian on both sides. He speaks some Italian. He goes around. And I love it. I watch it on the airplane because United has it often among their offerings, like the in-flight entertainment stuff. And it just passes the time. It's mindless but lovely. It makes me hungry without fail. And it got me excited. We're supposed to be going to Italy next summer, and I'm, like, extra stoked for it now that I've been watching a lot of this show. It is the only – and this is with all due respect to people who are over there and – They sometimes do some good stuff, but I do not seek out CNN programming really ever, except for this. This is a CNN original production, and I will say very well done, high-end, high-quality, very enjoyable. Well, CNN just canceled it. I guess they're doing a lot of cost-cutting there and a lot of changes, and one of the shows that got the axe is Stanley Tucci's Searching for Italy. So I guess they're going to try to keep producing it, but they're shopping it around to other outlets, and I hope someone picks it up, like Netflix or some sort of streaming service has to pick up this show because it's really good. Christine, I know you have not been to Italy, even though you are allegedly Italian in terms of your descent. Do you watch this show? Have you seen this show? I have never watched this show, but I am. I'm hoping there's going to be a place I could probably watch it, correct? I think so. It used to be available on, I think, CNN Plus, RIP. Oh, so it's it's got to be somewhere. Maybe Wyatt can help you find it. Wyatt is a fan of this show. Yes, Guy. It's it's a very good show. I, I, I've watched basically all of season one before I went to Italy last year, and it's it's well well put together. It's it's like Anthony Bourdain's show. Yes. The, yes. It's a good. similar vibe, a little bit less edgy, of course, because it's not Bourdain. No one is Bourdain. But it's good. And just the warning, if you're going to watch it based on this recommendation— don't do it on an empty stomach because you're just torturing yourself. Oh, just the pastas and the meats and everything. It's – I find myself sitting on a plane in the sky somewhere over the country and my mouth is literally salivating. Uh, and at best I've got some like pretzels coming. So maybe it's something to watch while you're having a sumptuous meal or something like that. That's the only recommendation I would offer. And I hope that it keeps going because it's just like a charming little well-produced show that – evidently will no longer be offered over at CNN. Finally, Christine, I had seen a couple tweets from people that I know strongly recommending a movie that's on Netflix called Prisoners or The Prisoners. It's one or the other. I think it's Prisoners. And it's got some pretty well-known actors in it. Jake Gyllenhaal plays a detective. Hugh Jackman is probably the main character, although it's quite a cast and a number of other actors that I recognized as well and people said it was really well done very intense with a pretty dramatic ending so i had seen just enough recommendations on social media for this movie now available on netflix i was like all right fine so adam was tired he went to bed i decided to watch it and it was extremely intense it was not a pleasant film to watch there was a pretty 
I won't say shocking or totally twist ending, but it was a surprising, well-executed ending. And the premise is, on Thanksgiving, two families who live in the same neighborhood are having dinner together. Their two young daughters are out playing, and it's really foul weather, but they want to run around. And they just go missing, and people can't find them. And there's a few clues here or there. The families are going increasingly crazy and getting desperate trying to find their daughters, who have clearly been taken. And over the course of the film, you start to find out more details about some sinister stuff that's been happening for quite some time in this community. And Hugh Jackman and the other parents, but particularly Hugh Jackman's character, is doing everything within his power, legal and beyond, to try to get these girls back. And, again, it is not just like a fun little romp for, like, a Saturday night, date night movie. It is dark. The performances, though, are really, really good. I enjoyed it as sort of a gritty crime drama. That's up my alley. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that it might not be exactly a bullseye hit with Cookie. Christine, what would it take to get you to watch this movie? You couldn't pay me to watch this movie. I movie, Guy, I have a nine-year-old little girl. What do you think? I know I'm a calm, easygoing, cool, and collected girl myself. <laughs> but what do you think this would do to me after I watched it? Well, because you watched the trailer, right? I did. And I texted yeah, even, you and I said, no You said way. even the trailer gave you anxiety. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So... I'm going to recommend prisoners to other listeners, but not you, because I think you would probably freak out, have nightmares. You'd go around the house, locking every door and window multiple times that night, and you might not allow your daughter, Megan, to leave the house for six to seven years. And I don't want to do that to her. Like, it's fine if you get a little bit traumatized watching a movie, but I just don't want you to overreact in a crazy way and punish her for this fictional, far-fetched, vanishingly rare type of thing happening to the girls in the movie. And I don't want to give any spoilers, by the way, but I don't want to do that to Megan. So I'm going to warn you not to watch it. But maybe, like, if you're off doing something, having a girl's night out, mama's juice or whatever, you're in bed early on airplane mode, any of those options, maybe Bobby would enjoy it, your husband. I don't know. I mean, he may have seen this already. I have no clue. But um, I'm not one to normally overreact to things, but I think after watching (laughs) this, I would. So, yes. You'd burn down your own house. Yes. You'd burn down your own house (laughs) just as a precaution. Like, well, if we don't have a house... And the apartment building's completely burned to the ground. No one can steal my child from the place that's ashes, right? That would be the very calm, cool, collected solution that might come to your mind. So let's just stay away from that. I know Dan watched it and liked it. Wyatt, have you seen it? I have not. All right. Maybe you should watch it and then see if you follow up on my recommendation to not watch it for Christine. (laughs) I just feel like, especially around Christmas time, there might be better options. Yeah, I mean, I've already had, don't you? Oh, I wasn't, you and I were not working together. Every day when I was pregnant, I thought I was going to be kidnapped. I thought people just wanted the baby inside of me. And I it was a legit fear. Oh, I remember that, like, you ran into a disoriented, very elderly woman on the street who was trying to find her own house and ask for your help. And you went screaming 
for her to get away from you because you thought she was part of a kidnapping ring, which is nuts, but that's what you did to that poor lady. So you actually have shared this little detail. This is not a new layer of the cookie onion being peeled back. It's just a, a reminder of some of the dysfunction. Thank you. Happy holidays. <laughs> Happy holidays. And with that, we're out of time. We got to go. It's the weekend, y'all. Have a great time. Stay sane, stay safe. Listen to Bonus Benson back here on Monday for new programming here on The Guy Benson Show. Merry Christmas. We will talk to you then. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.